You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, this is a very, very um, this this panel just kind of is is like lightning. It scorches with power all these people, and I've been asked to do the um, as well as to, as well as talking to do the um, almost impossible task of keeping them under control. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know how I'm going to do. So I'm doing my best. Um, so I'm going to start by um, uh, country is in important. Um, probably the most important part of the kind of the Aboriginal identity. We identify by our ancestral country. We own country and we're owned by it. The way I often describe it is that more than being an ownership or custodianship or anything, country is like um, the most important member of your actual family. Um, country is a beloved relative, a non-human relative that we must respect as a relative. And to that end, um, and art has always been a way to show country. And I'd like to, um, an example I can always give is the Narara canvas, which is a, a painting that was done on country on a canvas drop sheet, which was entered into Parliament as a title deed to prove ownership in a land rights case that they then won, which has been shown in, in spectacularly in the movie Putapari and the Rainmakers, if you ever want to see that. It's a brilliant movie. So um, I suppose I'll ask everyone else in the panel to start with, um, what do you think of the use of paintings as title in land rights claims and situations such as that? Who's got you go, John? <laughs> I'm just seeking permission to go first. <laughs> Sal, thank you. Um, look, I think that there's a huge question uh, or conversation here around what country is, and I think leading with that question of native title and and the question of property or ownership as being profoundly inadequate to understand what, what is spoken about when you're talking about country. Um, but also to understand that country is, is, particularly painted country, is the making visible of a whole system of meaning, a whole universe of, of authority and a whole regime of, of values that have been otherwise invisible to most non-Aboriginal Australians from day one. And so when, when the, the Noora claimants painted that giant canvas and presented it to the judge and said, this is our proof, we can't paint this unless we are the authority to paint it. This painting is the evidence that we have been here forever because if we hadn't, we wouldn't be allowed to paint it. The glorious circularity of that and the absolute clarity of, of moral um, authority there is a great lesson when thinking about country. Same with the Spinifex painters. They presented their paintings as part of their native title claim, making visible a system of law that was otherwise invisible to the Western legal system, granting native title to people who already had it. 
You know, that circularity of logic in Australia is sometimes really brutal. But when it comes to painting and painting country and revealing authority, um, you know, I guess Aboriginal artists have been genius in, in making visible their world to other systems. And I, and I guess that's in many ways. Country's many things, but that's what we're talking about in different ways today, I guess. So. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> for me, I always think about... So straight off the bat, I hate the terminology dream time or dreaming because it's so insignificant to our connections to our law and culture. And I'm talking L-A-W, not L-O-R-E. So with all of that, these, the country that we paint, our jukurpa, our song lines, it's an extension of oneself. So, you know, as artists, you go, well, what is your country? And it's like, well, no, my country is me and I am it. You know, so for these artists to say, this is my native title, this is my jukurpa, this is who I am, hear it, see it. But also we've got to remember that <clears throat> for mob, for anungu, for nunga, for everyone, like we have to use the Western ways of telling a story. So, and the best way is art. Through art, people get their own interpretations. Through art, they get to see an extension of that artist, of that jukurpa, of that rock hole and going through. But also we've got to remember canvases and barks and the, you know, the panels and the Western Des movement, that's new. Our oldest art practice are in our caves. That's where it started from. It's in those rock holes. It's going through. And so people have had that for years and centuries and it's been passed through. No, this is where your mob is. And as little kids, you draw in the sand of what that jukupar is and it goes through and you're taught it and you're taught that song line and it goes, it's, it embeds into you. So that, what, that's what jukupar is. And it's like, of course they did a painting. And like, the, if you look at Parliament House, those treaties and all that sort of stuff that they put in there, and this is me being very cheeky, um, <laughs> already straight off the bat being cheeky, um, You've got the Yukala Bark Petition. You've got the Baranga Statement in there. These incredible knowledges of Aboriginal leadership with their own jukurpas, with their own laws and culture, where they're asking for to be seen and heard by the Australian government. And they put it in that hall, which I call the dead hall of dead treaties, because they use it to stand there and have a cry and say, oh, we should have done more for Aboriginal people when they leave. I'm like, no, I don't need your tears no more. I found it interesting when Bob Hawke <laughs> cried. Oh, he I don't need that. Oh, Go everyone away. goes, oh, he cried, he cried. He could have done something first and then <laughs> he wouldn't need to cry. Yeah, exactly. Everyone says, I could have done more. Could have, should have, don't, don't matter. Go away now. Sorry. <laughs> and, and please continue to be cheeky. <laughs> And don't apologise for taking up space. Um, so I just want to begin um, my spiel by thanking the traditional owners of Nam for allowing me, us, to be on their unceded sovereign land today and to also acknowledge any elders who might be in the room um, here in this beautiful space with us. One of the reasons I want to start that way was because I had to reflect when I was in Yudakala 
last year for a couple of months uh, doing field work for the book that I'm writing at the moment, which is History of the Yudhikala Bark Petitions. And I use that word field work very advisedly. It's such a colonial word and it needs to be banished along with dreaming. Um, what I was doing was sitting and talking to people and hearing and listening. But I was also talking to them and giving them back some knowledges that I have from my documentary research in the colonial archive about the history of the Bark Petitions. And so in those talks with community in meetings, um, I would start with what we have come here in the South to recognise as being a reasonably um, just knee-jerk or formal welcoming, you know, at, to, to acknowledge country, to acknowledge custodians at the beginning. And when I did that up there and I said I want to acknowledge the traditional owners past and present of the lands that I'm currently occupying, those owners were sitting in front of me. They were the people that I was talking to. And it was a real moment for me of uh, having to invert some of the, the knowledge structures, but also more particularly the, the political relationships that we are used to occupying, particularly down south. Um, when we feel like we are talking about somebody who is kind of out there, um, but we don't actually have any formal relationship to them. And the way, why I use that as a kind of way into this is because the thing that I have increasingly realised in the decade that I've been researching this book now is that the Yudhikala Bark petitions, um, firstly, can I have a show of hands of people who know what they are? Okay. So that is a more... This is, a, this is a, um, not a representative sample, I would say, of the general Australian public because when I talk about the books that I'm writing... And this book is the, the third instalment of my democracy trilogy, the first one being about Eureka and the second one being about women's suffrage, and this one follows on that trajectory. I would say nine out of ten Australians do not know what the Yudhikala Bark petitions are, despite the fact that, as Sally has said, that they are in our Parliament House building and are considered one of the founding documents of, of Australian democracy. So the thing that I have... Come to realise is that one of the reasons that we don't take them seriously, um, you know, apart from white supremacy, apart from colonialism, is that they are viewed as art. They are not seen as a political document, and that the people who created those petitions in 1963 are seen as artists, that they are not seen as politicians, as statesmen, as people who are making a claim for their territory and are doing so within their systems of law, LAW law, Marayin, ROM, whatever word that you want to use. And the more that I um, myself get my own colonially trained academic head around the, the creation, what led to their creation, and but more particularly what those artists were trying to do, I am recognising them as title deeds. And they've been called that, but I'm not sure that we've ever really taken into account the ways in which these were forms of political communication. The, the painted parts of the document, so if you do know what they are, there's the painted frames. Um, I will, I can let you know that there were four of them, not the two that are in Parliament House. There were actually four original bark petitions that were all sent to Parliament House at the same time. 
and each of the painted frames is different. The petition in the inside, the words that are in Yungomata and in English are the same, same signatures below. But those painted frames, which are painted from country, on country, about country, are deeply political claims made by seasoned politicians who were working within centuries, tens of thousands of years old traditions about territory, land, who owned the land, who could come onto the land, the rules of engagement around that land, treaty making, trade relationships that are about land. And to be able to read those documents as the Yolngu wanted those documents to be read by a parliament that had no capacity whatsoever to understand what was being presented to them is actually, I think, the test that now faces us as a nation, rather than thinking of them as decorative uh, pieces of art that have in some way framed what is actually important about the petitions, which is the words. What's important about the words is that the Yungu politicians were sufficiently adaptive that they were able to get their heads around a form of colonial literacy that allowed them to put those petitions into the House of Parliament but they came from their own houses of parliament, their own form of democracy that was centuries old. So when we're actually talking about painting from country, we're talking about practising a form of democracy that is embedded in this nation, in this continent and in the land. Um, so... This one is um, a good, good place to start with this next point is I'll talk, wrap it on for a bit and then throw it to Sally because uh, it's always been my understanding that um, that not only is is art, art doesn't represent country, it is country because country is more than the physical landscape you are on. It is the physical landscape, it is the story, it is the law and it is the people who live on it. So... I've always believed from what I've heard from various people that um, not only is it really important for people to paint their works sitting on country, but if they can't paint the works on country, if they paint the works somewhere else, like in, for example, the APY gallery in, in Adelaide, they are still on country because the paintings are country. Sally, as an as a artist from the collective, <coughs> what, do you, what do you think of that assertion? I think the, what I love seeing with the ladies, and they talk about it all the time, is when they are painting, they're painting their jukurpa, they're painting their country, and they're going back to it in their mind. So while they can't physically be at home, it's allowing them to go home. So they sit there and go, no, no, I'm okay. Like, I'm going back to Mangura while I'm in this space. And it sort of takes you out of it. And for me, you know, I've only started, <laughs> recently started painting uh, 16 like, months ago. so good though. <laughs> 16 months ago. Um, it's so wacky. But anyway, um, for me, having the knowledge from all the senior artists around me, as well as my mum, my grandma, it allows me to paint what they've given me and having that duality and then putting myself on top of that 
And it's just continuing that connections through. And I don't explain my Jukudba. I've gone to this space where we, as Aboriginal artists, we put ourselves in our work and then we're told to retell our painting. We're told to give so much more. It's like, well, what's this Jukudba? What's this song line? What's this, you know, is this a Seven Sisters story? Like, what, you know, can you explain that to me? It's like, no. Not anymore. Not anymore. Let our, let artists be artists. And like as, you, as Claire said, you know, those bark petitions are incredible documents by Aboriginal leadership saying, I'm telling you this in your white world and I'm telling you this in our world, which is what I've done around it. And it's, but we're expected to say even more and give more. I'm sorry, but no one's asking Ben Quilty to talk about his, what he's done with his Tiranas. Like, Ben, you know, Ben says it all the time. Except he talk, he'll talk about everything, though. Yeah, but it's can't just... can't stop Ben talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like there's an expectation for Aboriginal artists to give more. It's like, no, sit there, read it, look at it and feel what that artist is giving you. <laughs> that is that Jukutba. And you don't need to know more. You can be okay now with just a surface. <laughs> and full disclosure, uh, I'm a big fan of Sally's and her art is on the cover of my book. <laughs> so, so I'm a big fan. And you can get Claire's book at any good bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, John, do you, um, your experience in, in Balgo um, about the, like, the importance of being on country to paint or...? Yeah, well, I think it's a... It's a, a I've probably got a complimentary or quite a different experience from Sally, obviously, being, you know, a middle-aged white bloke trying to get my head around country. Um, <laughs> we're coming at it from really different perspectives. But I think... Got to have the token white bloke. Yeah, you've got to have a token white bloke on every panel these days, you know. It's, <laughs> I am very happy to fulfil that, that role in our society. Um, but I think... I, look, I went to, you know, to, to Balgo as a young man to try and get my head around precisely this thing. I was seeing all this Aboriginal art. I was overwhelmed by it and overwhelmed by my ignorance. And really there wasn't a way in to understand that, that challenge and that gift. Um, and so I, you know, I, I understood that my responsibility was not to say, what does this painting mean? But my responsibility was to understand the history in which that painting had had to be made. And so um, I think that, like, I think that artists do want you to understand their paintings. They expect you to come at it. Like, different artists have different expectations. But, um, but this idea that you have to do the work, you know, like, there's... They want you to understand, but they want you to do some thinking yourself first. Yeah, it's a great before, gift. Before asking silly questions. It's a great gift to be shown someone's country. It's the greatest intimacy and trust you can get to be shown someone's country, either in, in the place or in a painting of it. It's the same. But you then have the response. My understanding from, you know, 20 years in, in the desert is the, the responsibility lies with you having been given that gift whether you're a, someone in an art gallery or someone visiting country, you then, that's a revelation. That's not, hey, here's, here's a thing, you might or might not like it. That's not what, what is being offered to you. The, and it's the same with the bark petitions. The expectation is to be shown something this important 
you would do the work of understanding that, that responsibility. You know? It's a gift. It's a gift. Or like the Bark Petition was a gift. The Uluru Statement from the Heart was a gift. This was Aboriginal leadership from around the country getting together to talk about what do we want? How do we want to make a better Australia? And saying we need to have a better Australia for all of us, for our Aboriginal children, for our non-Indigenous children. It has to improve. It has to change. And saying, you know, voice treaty truth. We need a voice net mechanism because we are voiceless at the moment. Our remote communities are completely voiceless. A treaty process will not succeed in this country in a space of a three-month, three-year term of federal government. Like, it's just not going to happen. You'll get an insignificant and bullshit treaty. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've just gone on a full rant. But the, the, these incredible gifts were given to everyday Australians. It wasn't gifted to Parliament, to everyday Australians to say, hang on, I'm giving this to you. Walk with us, hear us and come on this journey. And that's what every project's like. That, you know, it's artists saying, this is me giving my, like as we said, country is an extension of oneself. So when they're giving that you're, they're showing you their country, they're painting that country, they're giving that to you to look at, you then have to do the work. We've been talking about reconciliation for 20 odd years. We've been talking about, we know about the stolen generation. We know all of this stuff. But how we, how have we as everyday Australians picked that up and say, yes, I understand and I'm going to change and I'm going to carry this forward? That whole idea of it being a gift is something that, and the Yakata Bark petitions being a gift, is something that's actually only just come to me very recently. And one of the things that I've realised as an historian and as a researcher is that I am going through a process of unlearning as much as I'm going through a process of learning about country, about people and about systems that are beyond my ken because they're also connected with cosmologies and languages and and they cannot and kinship systems and they can't be indivisible they're not in they're they're indivisible um, and, and I should say I have been on country uh, in northeast Arnhem land for over 10 years my husband and I and our family went to live there um, in Gunyangara in northeast Arnhem land uh, over 10 years ago and I'm part of the family structure there adopted in, um, but it only became apparent to me that I wanted to meld that part of my family life, my identity, with my research and my work as an historian kind of later on. But that process of unlearning is incredibly important because it does come down to language as well. So I have always thought of the Bach petitions as petitions. And petitions are a plea. A petition is made by somebody who, in its very understanding, is subject to the state, is below in the hierarchy. You're, you're making a request, you're asking something of a government who is should be of you, a government bought for the people, by the people. But the language in the petition itself is... Um, and your servants humbly pray. And that is part of the English language system. And so thinking about these as these documents as being petitions automatically in your mind slots the yongu into 
into a, um, a subject position that they themselves never understood themselves to be in. And they understood themselves as the owners of their country, the owners of their land since time immemorial, and it, and it had never occurred to them that they were anything but that until the beginning of 1963. So the frontier came very late to northeast Arnhem Land. And it was only the, the clash that happened over, I won't go into the whole history now, but um, the mining coming, bauxite mining coming to northeast Arnhem Land and it's part of Arnhem Land Reserve being excised through a proclamation and taken away from them, that it became apparent that these strangers, the miners who were coming, were different from previous strangers who had come, were different from Macassans, were different from Japanese pearlers, were different from the armed forces that came in World War II, who came and did what they needed and did it on quite respectful terms and, and accepted various trade relationships and, and partnerships and agreements that you would make through any form of international diplomacy, and then they left again. And this was clearly a different situation because nobody was asking for permission to come onto their land. And that didn't, wasn't a, just a sense of injustice. It actually broke law. It broke Yongul law to come onto somebody's land without asking permission. And so language is incredibly important here. And... And that's why when we also just look as, at paintings as paintings because they're a visual medium, not a written medium, that we have to be really careful about the way that we then use words to describe what is going on because the words themselves might completely undermine the actual process of looking or engagement or, or indeed, as you say, the gift giving that is essential to the act of doing the painting in the first place. Um, I, I just want to, I've got a, a little aside that's kind of related to this and then I'll get back on topic, you know, wrong way. Um, it's actually not that unrelated anyway. There's a there's a children's book called Jimmy and Pat Meet the Queen. I don't know if you've um, heard about that one. It's basically about um, Jimmy Pike and his wife having to do a, um, having to prove their land rights by identifying where all the waterholes are and the chukapara and the waterholes, etc. And it ends with, with Jimmy and an Aboriginal man saying, actually, we're told we have to prove to the Queen that we own this land. When did the Queen prove she owned it? Can the Queen name the waterholes? Does the Queen know the stories? Can the Queen paint this country? And of course, no. There's the, by Aboriginal law, white Australians do not own anything here because they can't tell you the story of it. They can't identify anything about it. And that's an interesting way to look at things. And um, a little bit of a – now back on topic in a, in a big way <laughs> after that, after that um, political aside. Um, people often think of – people don't think of this often, but um, I don't know if anyone else has insights on this. But it's often said that um, Aboriginal artists, when seeing someone else's painting of country they know, can identify the chukapa of the painting even if they don't know the artist's work. So in that way, um, it is – Aboriginal art could be seen as a written language that is way too complicated for the uninitiated to ever understand. What is it, what's everyone else's thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mum will sit there and go, this is that Laura there that they painted over here. And she does it with artists that not necessarily from APY. Yeah. Like she does it with um, Nyanda artists all the time, spin effects mob. She can sit there and go, oh, what, this is that... That old person was doing this, this, and this. 
it's it's what we see and we always say, you know, these paintings have a deeper meaning to it. So, yeah, we can – I'm still learning, so I, you know, but, yeah, definitely. But I think, um, you know, like if you're sitting down with an esteemed group of scholars, you yeah. know, and someone says, oh, I've just, I've just – I've just written the Iliad, and yes, I've just written Shakespeare. Said, oh, yes, I know Shakespeare. You know, it's like you're dealing with people who have encyclopedic understanding of vast tracts of country that's overlaid with uh, thousands and thousands of years of song and memory and, and political and moral and ecological knowledge that in order to know your place in the desert, you have to know all the other places around you. You might not say much about it because it's not your right to, but you bloody well know it. And you, and you know the song, but you're not allowed to sing it. So there's and this, also, yeah, yeah. those And there's song lines that are open and closed. And also there's old trading routes. So can, I can go up to Balgo and they can they understand Pijanjara up there. So it's an old trading route. They give you a book too. Yeah. <laughs> John's book is here for sale, everyone. It's a beautiful yellow. <laughs> Inter interestingly, on that um, word songlines, if we're going back to language again, uh, another book that I would highly recommend people read is Song Spirals by the Gaywoo Group of Women, who are women from northeast Arnhem Land. Uh, it has a yellow cover too, actually. I, <laughs> I brought it along all, to show all you. All yellow yellow covers are so do. hot right now. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons I think that book is so important is that it was written by this group of women um, and as a gift, again, and it is an incredibly generous gift. I've read it three times, and every time I do, there is more and more the depth, the emotion, what they are trying to do in terms of an offering to other Australians is incredible. But one of the things that they, they say is they reject the idea of songlines in the mm. same way that you've rejected the idea of dreaming. Yeah. And they reject the idea of dreaming as well because they say, uh, dreaming implies we're asleep. We're not asleep. Yeah. We're wide awake. <laughs> And dream time implies it's a different time. Oh, when it's not, it's now. It's creation time, and it, which is it, now, it, because now. they live in the every when. Yes. That there is no past, present, future, because they are all mixed up. But also, and this is part of what I've been trying to unlearn as well, is one of the reasons they object to the idea of song lines is that, um, that it in itself is a Western teleological notion of progress of going from one place to another in a straight line and that also a line is fixed and it's rigid and whereas they say in this book that in Jung, in Jung law lines can constantly be shifting as long as the pr correct processes are followed in order to do that. So they prefer to use the English word, the analogy of spirals with the idea that Things are constantly spiralling in and out, up and down, through, over and under, and back and back and forward through time as well, and that all of these things are connected. They also disregard the idea of song lines because they were essentially set by a fella, um, Bruce Chatwin, who and that so much of that knowledge about song lines was con was collected by men from men. And when they, if they did speak to women, they weren't, those women were not able to give them the knowledge, the, the, the actual answers to the questions they might have been asking because they, it is not correct practice to be able to speak to a man about those. So in terms of um, talking about the layers of understanding painting, 
um, and understanding language. In Yungo, they have also what they call inside story and outside story or inside language and outside, which sometimes is secret um, uh, or not secret. But even Yungo people, if they were looking at certain paintings, would only understand, the it would only know how to read the country to a certain degree because if they had not been initiated with the language to understand the stories, the Dao that are behind um, the other Medellin and the other forms of Minichi, the designs, then those knowledges are locked to them as well. So we are only ever getting a teeny weeny part of the understanding of those stories because effectively we can't understand language. And if you want to see um, renditions of Yongu country and Yongu ocean, because Yongu asserts sea rights the same way that they assert land rights. If you go over there, through that door over there, there's the probably the biggest exhibition of Yongu art that's been staged in Melbourne, right there, right now, called Bark Ladies. It's just there. So go there after you three drives. Don't go now. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a little bit. Um, what was I going to say? Um, so, um, in, when we're talking about the the, um, the politics of it, and the of course, and painting on country, um, I just remember that um, a while ago when I in the put the documentary put a part in the rainmaker, she's definitely worth seeing. Um, there's a moment where they rolled out their but their um, big canvas of their country that they used for their land rights claim, and they all went and stood on their spot of country on the canvas on on the on this rolled out painting. And in that moment, they were on country again when they received their success with their land rights claim. And I thought that was a very powerful moment in that they all considered by standing on the painting of their own country. And then, weirdly, they rolled it up and sent it off on a tour of museums. So they actually sent, bits of their, sent their country away to the museums for a while. Well, I mean, I think that... I mean, I work in museums, so I think that's great. But, um, <laughs> but I think... Those artists are very, very savvy communicators. They understand that, that that painting, the complexity of that is hard to communicate, but that by putting it in front of the largest possible audience, like they put it in front of the judge and it convinced the judge. But there's this work to do on the rest of us, you know, and I think that's what the Uluru Statement is about and before it, the Bark Petition. These are documents addressed to us, to you as Australians to reckon with. And so I think whether it tours a museum or it's in an art gallery or it's in parliament, I mean, it's probably less effective, ironically, in parliament than it is over there when you walk inside Barclays, you will be moved. You will get that you are inside a sovereign system and that you have a lot of work to do to get your head around it and to be a participant in supporting and respecting it because you're now part of, there's no escaping for all of us you're now part of that pre-existing system. And how do you respectfully be a part of it? How do you participate in Aboriginal country without ignoring it or stuffing it up or disrespecting the people who, who allow us to be here? So I think, um, I think that the, the genius of painted country is in its address to each of us. And, and I think that the most recent expression of that you know, the, the Uluru Statement is a beautiful set of words, the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful set of words in Australian history. But it's on a painting. There's a reason for that, so hey. It's definitely. And the, because 
we made that happen. Look at me taking all the credit. Um, well, you were there. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. So we went. So because the la- senior women from Mordijula community weren't actually there. Um, when the Uluru Convention happened, they were off at a sacred women's site doing um, songline stuff and Myanmar and everything. And so they came back and we, everyone who were part of the Uluru Convention, the um, constitutional reform stuff, they signed it and then the ladies put their stamp on top afterwards and it was such a beautiful expression of themselves. And... Um, and I'm refusing to ever allow that painting to be in Parliament House. Um, it will go in there over my dead body. So we're actually building a building in Murijulu so that it can go back there and it will sit at the heart of the nation and it will be a place where kids, school kids can go and see it there. Go to Uluru and see this incredible Aboriginal leadership. You know, we have this thing about we'll go to Canberra to see democracy. We go and see all of that. No, no, no. You can now go to Uluru. You can now go and see the signatures of 250 Aboriginal leaders who got together, not for a march, not to see a sorry day, not for Michael Long's long walk home, none of that. It was a full three days of intense conversation about what do we want? What is our hopes and aspirations for this country? And really difficult conversations about what does, how the Northern Territories has no supportive mechanisms as states do, you know, because as a territory, they're just completely subjected to the federal government. So it's like, how do we make sure that there's these mechanisms to support our communities? And, you know, and so it was just like, nope, it's going to go back there. That's where you can go and see it. Can I? Oh, sorry, Claire, did you want to... No, I was just going to usurp the other Claire's role and ask you a question, John. Um, <laughs> well, got mad. About, about your music, being, um, working in museums and being an anthropologist because you've got a lot of stuff there that I know that you're sending back to country. I mean, so there's the whole act of repatriating it, getting it out of the colonial institutions that have collected art and sending it back to country. So do you want to... Can I just interrupt the other Claire and, and John? Oh, double meta <laughs> <laughs> No, I just also want, I want to add that to everyone who doesn't know this, that, um, and that since John's been there, South Australia's been moving the fastest of any Australian museum to repatriate objects and people. And I, I just want to say, like, well done to John. I know he doesn't do it alone, but he actually is part of a museum moving fastest in doing this. Well done, John. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. No, that's that means a lot to me, Claire. Um, but I think that that so I went to work in museums to do that work. So museums are places that are built on taking stuff and removing it from its context. And some of that is really powerful in the in the scientific realm for understanding how the world is put together. And some of it is really violent if you're trying to understand how human cultures are put together. And so I think a big part of the trajectory of, of cultural institutions and museums in Australia and around the world is, is questioning the legacy of, of these collections that are off-country. And so a lot of what we do, um, as, as the Claire's have, have pincered me into here, um, is to look at what's in museums and reflect on whether they should be there or not. And there's a lot of material that, that I'm working on with communities around the country to bring home. Because the the act of being on country, even though country is more than place, even though it's this sedimentation of, 
of spiritual and historical and uh, ecological and moral and personal histories compressed into place and selfhood compressed into place. Um, that means still you have to go to those places to activate those levels of knowledge. And so returning uh, material to country is an incredibly powerful thing to do in, in the architecture of Aboriginal systems of knowledge. And I think that this, this is the, the work of a relevant museum, a relevant culture, a, a truly Australian institution should be looking at the movement of material in and out of country and, and back to country all the time, rather than seeing museums as an endpoint in a trade system that's failed. Um, but I think that this question of place and of country actually comes back to what Sally was saying about where the Uluru statement from the heart should be. It is not a, it is not a gimmick to suggest that this has to be at Mutajulu and shouldn't be in Parliament. That's not being bolshy. There's a profound ontological statement about the education required for Australians to go to that place where that statement was authorised by the great leaders of our country and to understand it to come from there. It's surrounded by all the jukurpa, all the stories that authorise that place where those words were spoken. When you start to, or if you're, if you're lucky enough to be taught some of these stories from Aboriginal leaders, it's always about language coming from the ancestors, coming from the leaders, coming from the earth and going back into it. You know, and so that language, that most perfect bit of poetry in Australian life came from Uluru. And you have to go to Uluru to understand it. And that is a mecca, that is a journey that you would hope every Australian goes through over the next 50 years. Our kids and our grandkids will go to Uluru not to climb the freaking rock, but to climb the, the, the mountain of their own ignorance and to stand witness to a better kind of version of our country that Aboriginal leaders have asked us to stand beside them, you know, in, in supporting. So I think that when we're talking about country, that's what it's about. Like, it's not, you can't choose. <laughs> it's a real thing, you know, you have to respect that. It's, it's, um, it's interesting, um, the, the concept of Uluru, if you've ever been there, you, you kind of might have seen some of this. If you've never been there, you should go, but not to climb the fucking thing. Um, you can't anyway. No you more. can't now anyway, it's banned. But the people used to say of, of the climb, like non-Indigenous like, non people who disapproved of the climb used to say this thing. They'd say that um, if you're interested in the place and in the Aboriginal life of it and the Aboriginal story and, and, and sacred places, the, the, what's on top of the rock is the most boring bit. Not only is it insulting the traditional owners, but all the chukapa is around the base of it. So if you want to know about this place, you walk around the base of it with a, with a traditional owner, or you do one of the guided walks, or you read the, the plaque's information on that, that are put there for you to know the bits of chukapa you're allowed to know. But there's one thing you don't do, which I never, didn't see at all of us, I saw it somewhere else. Um, and this is kind of related to painting on country, because it actually was a painting on country. But I was in Arnhem Land at a, um, a rock art tour, and the tour guide said that, said at one point, she said that from this, um, she was a, a, a white woman who'd been educated just enough to be able to explain the rock art by the traditional owners and no more. But she said, to, to, just over around the next corner is a piece of rock art that's considered um, to be too sacred for white people to see and women are definitely not allowed to see it. Aboriginal women aren't allowed to see it. 
So she said, and so in about a week, we've got to put a screen in front of it so the only traditional owners with a key can go in and have a look at it. So she said, and they've specifically asked people not photograph it in case it accidentally ends up being seen by a woman somewhere and it's because it's very sacred. As soon as she finished the sentence, about 10 white women ran around the corner to photograph it. Don't do that. But that's a, it is a, a sacred painting on country. It represents the Chukapa. And there's, in, in the layers of story and country, there are things you're allowed to know, and there's things you're not allowed to know. And if you're not allowed to know, there's a reason why you're not allowed to know. And there's levels of kind of basic respect. So, for example, if you're looking at a painting and you ask the um, traditional owner or the, the artist what the painting's about, and they say they can't tell you, they can't tell you. They tell you that there's um there's signs in various parts of various places in Australia asking that Aboriginal women not go to this site. Even Aboriginal women from other mobs don't go to this site. Now, if the if I if I was a white woman, I saw a sign like that, I wouldn't go there either. And I certainly don't go to those sites. We just don't do it. Um, and this is all about this kind of there's the, that country is not just country. It is a what we see is like. The, the, lump, the lumps on the surface when you throw the sh a sheet over something. The country is made of story. The country is made of, of sacredness and it's made of, of people and it's made of chukapa and law. And what all you can see is a sheet that's thrown over all of that. And getting to know some Aboriginal culture will help you to lift up the sheet as much as you're allowed to lift, lift it up and look at the first layer underneath that. And you'll see underneath that is another sheet. And underneath, that's another layer of stuff that you may or may not be allowed to know. And that's, the more you get to know about country, the more you can see that. And I would say that, you know, we talk about Uluru as being this mecca, this incredible space, and people used to climb it, and now you can't. I would say be really careful about climbing any mountain. There's this weird, I don't know if it's whitefella bullshit, but I don't understand it. There's... Weird notion, I climb, I came, I conquered, you it's know. A, it's a white fella thing. Yeah, but like I look at Mount Everest and see how uh, like how many people climb that and ruin that and it's it would have such an incredible, so like it's got strong and stories and jukupra and law for those mob there, but they destroy it constantly. And, you know, it's just like be careful of every place that you go to and it's like, oh, I want to see the sunrise on the thing. It's like, just see the sunrise. You don't need to climb nothing to do that, you know. It's just be really mindful of the spaces you are in because as we've been saying, you know, we have a connection to this ground and this ground is us, you know, and it's we look at, you know, we talk about Mother Nature, we talk about our responsibility to the environment. Well, you know, all of that, just be really mindful about how you leave a place and how you go and present to a place because there's a story there. You just don't know it. Question time? Yeah, we can, we can do a Q&A. Does everyone else want to do a Q&A? Does anyone want to ask a question? <laughs> I think there's a roaming mic out there. I don't know how long we've got. How long have we got? How long have we got? Five minutes. <laughs> ten minutes. Five, ten. Six. Five, six, ten, three, five. All right. And the, the best <laughs> question gets. Oh, you get a free book. You get Layla Gurawiwi's copy of the Belgo book. Do 
Well, you, it's not a problem anymore because it's now fenced off and you can't climb it. That's that's it, not a problem anymore. It's, it's, <laughs> done. it's finished now. So yeah. Over. If, if I Sally will a, drag a, people yeah, down the road. A comment on that. Just what the word that I picked up on what you were saying there is he was saying that that he's not engaging in politics and that he wanted to keep the politics out of it. One of the things that's become so apparent to me is that all painting from country that is of country is political. Absolutely. It's all political art. You cannot divorce politics from it because it's about... Um, it's, a, it's about law, it's about boundaries, it's about negotiations, it's about history, it's about power and where it comes from and the authority for power and all of that is politics. And so is and surviving when the colony wanted you to be extinct. The fact that we're still here is political as well. I'm sorry, Sam. It, it, it's interesting that people always talk about the, the Carter petition and the Uluru Statement, but they don't talk about the Barunga Statement that was handed to the Prime Minister by hand in Barunga, at which point he promised to implement the, the changes requested in that document, and that was the one he cried when he failed to deliver his promises. So it, not only is the Barunga Statement, a, it, was a, it had paintings, it actually that was a weird, unusual because it brought together the desert paintings on one side and the saltwater paintings on the other side. To say it was a statement between, in combination between the saltwater people and the desert people. And it was accepted into Parliament, promised to be acted on, and then and it wasn't acted on. As opposed to the Uluru Statement, which they basically said they're not going to act on. Well, this is the thing, though. With the Uluru Statement, it's up to us to now. We're, we've got a federal election. The government said that they're going to um, they, they've put money aside for a referendum. So it's us, the people, have to push our MPs. And it's a state, a federal election, so they're going to be on their campaign trail. And it's up to you to say, hang on, what's your, what's your stance on the Uluru Statement? How are you going to make sure we embed a First Nations voice to Parliament? Like, that's up to you. And also, can I just say this? It's also okay that all black people don't agree. There's this weird myth out there that all black people have to think alike, like everything, and agree. It's all minorities have to have one brain. It's actually okay. Because all the, all the modulars all think the same. Yeah. But it's, it's actually okay that black people have varying opinions and varying things. So some mob don't want us to do the voice. They want to do treaty first. My problem with that is that there's not a mechanism that will support a treaty and a proper treaty pro, uh, process. Because for us to get to a proper treaty process in this country, it's going to take 20 years. Because tribes by tribes need to have their own treaty negotiations. You know, regions by regions need to have their own agreement making and discussions and come together in those conversations before then we go to government. And also, if you have a treaty process now with government, with government sitting up there with all of their rights and laws and voices, and Aboriginal voices are down here, we're nothing at the moment, how is that, how is that a level playing field? It's not. So a treaty, if we did a treaty right now and we pushed it in the next three years, it will be the most meaningless treaty ever. It will be a tick box agenda, which is like a rap plan that everyone does now. You know, so it's just sort of, 
We need a voice. We need to be heard. We need to make decisions in our communities. And it's up to you to push that and say, hang on a minute, where are you standing and how are you going to make sure Aboriginal people are being heard? That is what you can do. That is your people power. We're all good about marching, but we're not good about writing a letter. We're all good about marching, but we're not good about making sure to have a meeting with our MPs and push them and make sure that they are hearing us because it's, it's not good enough. They're meant to be representing us. We're allowing them to get away with complacency at the moment. Sorry, rant over. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to add to that rant. I, I wrote recently in, a, um, in an opinion article I was, I was asked to write, and I wrote in it that um, basically Aboriginal people lack basic rights because essentially either every vote in Australia wants it to be so or every vote in Australia doesn't want to stop it enough to stop it. Because every time a government puts up Aboriginal rights as a policy statement, they get voted out. So it's not, it's not the government who are deciding this, it's the voters who, are not, who don't have enough conviction to vote out a government that doesn't give Aboriginal people rights. Can That's I, my rant. Can I go back to the law question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm loving the ranting, but I don't really feel like I've... This is a soapbox opportunity for me. Um, but it, I, I, it's wonderful to hear that you're, you're teaching the Yerkala Bath petitions as law because I essentially believe that what was happening in 1963 was not a clash of cultures, which is how it's often presented, but a clash of legal systems. Two complete legal systems. One of them had the authority of the king, which we often think is, you know, that often goes king and country, interestingly, um, which is a totally different idea of country, it's actually king and the imperialism that backs up those power imperial power relations at the point of a gun. And then a legal system that had existed for tens of thousand years and still existed then and importantly still exists now. That legal system has not been superseded. It has to live in some kind of uneasy, very disquieting um, relationship to British law or Australian law, but that legal system that was being um, expressed and communicated through the Yakala Bark petitions does still exist now and will continue to exist in perpetuity. So to understand it in terms of law and to break it down using our, 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 the limited notions of our English language in order to understand it, and I'll just give you a small example. So the Gove land rights case that came as a result of 1963, so beginning in 1968 and through to 71, that was Justice Blackburn's decision that um, upheld the notion of terra nullius essentially and said that the Yongle people of northeast Arnhem Land did have a spiritual connection to the land, a religious connection, but they didn't have an economic connection to the land. They didn't have a proprietor interest in the land, which was completely against Yongle law. One of the things that the men did, the old men did, who, were who, had, who had taken the Crown to court, um, and the, the mining company to court, was that they broke with all tradition and revealed to the judge in a closed sitting a particular piece of art. It was um, bird's feathers woven with possum fur. There's a Yongle name for it. Um, that effectively was a constitution 
and they believed that in showing the judge this constitution, he would finally understand, that they would take the risk of showing it to them, he would finally understand what was actually at stake and that this claim that they were making was embedded in law and it, it wasn't about a feeling of spiritual connection to the land because despite the fact that you know, this area had been missionized and, and the Bible was part of, of the colonial project, actually when it came to it, law was more important than religion. And so, again, it was another way of dismissing the claim and the authority to land in the same way that art is dismissed as just being pretty pictures spirituality or a religious connection is actually also dismissed as being secondary to the law. So they tried to do this and the fact that they still lost the case is actually what shattered hearts and souls and spirits and was started to be the undoing of the authority of the tribal elders as well. Now we're, we're just about out of time and I just thought I'd throw to one last, we are out of time. I just thought I'd throw to one last thing, um, which I should do because I, I, I probably should do it. Um, there's a um, organisation called Purple House, I don't know if you've heard of them, they're a charity to give dialysis to people on community so they can stay and paint on country rather than going to something like Alice Springs to die. Um, the they, Purple House has been working for years to build dialysis clinics in Aboriginal communities and they're basically my, my number one overall favourite charity and I think you should all support them. And if you all, if anyone you buy a copy of John's book, his writer's fees go to Purple House. John's book, Belgo, there, which is under, I've hidden it under my book, which is a bit rude, but John can show you, <laughs> show you his book. But they, they match, look. So, yeah, Purple House is, um, is probably <laughs> at the moment... Um, in a practical sense, the most probably one of the best things you can do is if you want to support Aboriginal rights is support Purple House so that Aboriginal elders in remote communities can stay on country and live on country and paint on country and practice law and practice culture. And um, so if you can, go out there and, and donate to Purple House, buy John's book, buy the book um, Beyond Borders, which is about artist Patrick Chungarai who helped found Purple House. It's at the art gallery store to buy. So the, it's all about the art gallery right now and John's book, which is also at the art gallery. Um, I don't think my book is. But, but yeah, just support Purple House and just support... And all the statement from the heart. And the, support the all statement from the heart and buy, buy Claire's books, buy my books, buy Claire's new book when it comes out, buy my books. And I think that's it. And, so back to, and thank you, Leela, for, for being such a great... <laughs> I'm a, oh, my God, I better talk fast. <laughs> You're listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>